This evening's talk is <clears throat> about kama or karma in kama in Pali and karma in Sanskrit. And beginning with words from the Buddha, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying um, something that I found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that this teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear or belief in any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, as it relates to all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on Kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, and I think I can safely say this for most of us, women and men, who have uh, primarily been brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented countries. And I think it's also safe to say, say this for those who have been brought up and acculturated, at least in good part, in various Asian cultures, that it's been kind of a relief to discover that it turns out Kama is not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of kama, which is one of the one of Buddhism's central themes, is really um, quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that it somehow may elude our complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama, is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and more clearly as action based in intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat deeper or maybe subtler meaning than intention. The motivation in the mind behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddha's teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intention or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. 
This is really the essence of kama. And from the Buddha, monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads us to choose to act or to speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome comma. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome comma. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created combined and intensified throughout our life begins to be clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something I've discovered by way of my own deep practice uh, to be really quite amazing and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has actually a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions. So, for example, such as, I did that intentionally. Or, is that really what you meant to say? I think that's a very common way that we understand um, intention. The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the six sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic or comic benefits or fruits of these choices. Intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or to not proceed in any particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, the heart, responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know 
more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind. Which means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic or karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. So basically this is the teaching of cause and effect or cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that is powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. And it's possible to actually experience this process occurring when mindfulness is accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration. And even on a very subtle level, when clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a very well-developed access concentration. So, in this light, consider that even just one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It'll result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions that shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in in speech or in actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through maybe our bodily makeup, such as maybe various physical expressions and even some physical features, as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us, that we, in a, in a sense, uh, draw to us from external sources, can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful and are repeatedly acting out or practicing these specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say, everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive comma, intention, doesn't have to be on a a gross level for it to be effective or to have an effect. I remember once many years ago when I was sitting a retreat, I got a note that wasn't uh, at all pleasing to me. So I proceeded to uh, angrily tear up the piece of paper (laughs) that the note was written on. And even though that piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action of angrily tearing it up certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. In contrast to this, 
much more recently, uh, I was cleaning off my desk at home. And with a pretty neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away a scrap of paper. With that action, of course, producing a very different effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the chain of or the wheel of dependent origination or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, which is the, simply, in a simple explanation, which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha or ease that we have via the six sense doors come to us, how they manifest and then cease to be, comma, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. In light of this discussion, uh, I'd like to read some words from the uh, Thai uh, Buddhist scholar, Venable Peyuto. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck that is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight on a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause, maybe cause irritation. An even smaller amount lighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There is no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary for us to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offered in an earlier talk uh, during this retreat where various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in that same woodland thicket. So this evening I'd like to share just a part of one of these same short dialogues as uh, an illustration regarding what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse uh, that I offered in an earlier talk about a a bhikkhu, a monk, uh, who after returning from his daily alms rounds and then eating his meal in this woodland thicket where he practiced every day, would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who uh, lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, This bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. Uh, 
If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him, she said. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And the deva is speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu, the monk, responds, I do not take. I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds to the bhikkhu. When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought and speech and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and then on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we could say, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or we may not like it at times, we're the undeniable heirs of our kama. So, for instance, I said this the other evening, just as soon as we've spoken words or as soon as we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us in some way and in some way inevitably returns to us as what could be called our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say that with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and the external happenings that we experience. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. Meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena, our own mind. Our ease and happiness, or dis-ease and suffering, is due to the motivations, intentions, and the subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech, not due to our wishes not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange or foreign world. And again, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our practice to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, 
and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are really good, bringing in promoting health when we eat them, when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease or disease, maybe poisonous for us, maybe even maybe deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind or underneath the potential actions and feed ourselves and others healthy food and consequently create healthy kama. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and, and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we know our motivations, the more we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. We only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped, running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas or paint or clay or marble or music or pen and pencil and paper, as our creative medium. It's our very mind, body, and heart, and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. So again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners, are the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing we can and we do actively create and fashion our life, and that the more clearly we know our motivations, know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience 
of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views pretty often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, direct our intentions and the resulting thoughts, which then potentially flow flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings, things, even situations, experiences, and and places as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance, meaning ignoring the truth of things. We're motivated by what is called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. With this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are actually coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy or unwholesome place and will inevitably bring some degree of suffering to ourself and very potentially also to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together, And that, in fact, the causes and the conditions themselves are always in flux. That nothing, no thing, abides independently or separately or is static. Our intentions, our motivations, come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations, come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all begin to come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are more and more often appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently then are beneficial in both overt and in subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And some words from the Buddha about right view. He has a very, um, I find, interesting uh, way to um, bring this out. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama, kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama, kama created as as a result of that view, and mental kama, created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste 
an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. And then he says, monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created, kama created as a result of that view. Verbal kama, kama created as a result of that view. Mental kama, kama created as a result of that view. As well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriments are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account? On what account is that? On account of that good seed. The Buddha often uh, used uh, similes or metaphors that are very um, earthy, (laughs) very natural. It's very interesting. An important aspect of right view is in relationship to what we call self, me, which, at least in part, is very often in reference to this body, these bodies. And as we explored uh, somewhat briefly in an earlier Dhamma talk in this retreat, this body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process made up of many elements, with all and each of them being in continual flux. The the experiential characteristics of the four great elements that we come to know directly through our practice. So just just briefly um, listing the characteristics of each of the four great elements that we do experience through our practice. So the characteristics of the earth element that we directly experience in practice. Hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element that we know and experience in practice. Flowing, cohesion, the characteristics of the fire element, experiential characteristics for us, heat, warmth, cold or coolness. And lastly, the experiential uh, characteristics that we come to know directly of the wind or the air element, supporting, pushing, This experiential understanding of the body can be an important and illuminating step on the path to right view in relationship to directly experientially understanding not-self, impersonality. And at least in part, it's in this light that the Buddha spoke about Actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like seeds that are planted and then transformed into the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, quickly. Some seeds are dormant, maybe for many years, maybe for many lifetimes. Sometimes we can consider this, depending on how you think about things, as heredity. Until uh, the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate these seeds. And always the fruit will bear 
a direct relationship to the seed. So an obvious and clear metaphor that's often used is that apple seeds bring apple trees and apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. And if we plant poppy seeds, no matter how much we might hope, lettuce will not grow from these seeds. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. And angry or hateful acts produce hateful fruit. So again, the words from the Buddha that we began this evening's uh, exploration with, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. Not self, impersonality, behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. That's a very uh, unfortunate misunderstanding of emptiness. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness, not self, with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their comic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intentions, based on motivations, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind and speech and body. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome or unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of kama, or karma as it is in Sanskrit, should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. That's pretty fine. (laughs) Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act, and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once uh, once they've been said and performed, has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choices as we work, as we practice to purify and to transform our mind and heart. Meaning, we're no longer constantly running on automatic. We're no longer constantly running on habitual ways of thinking and speaking and acting. Our field of choices has broadened considerably. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving-kindness, compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression or anger or judgment or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's really not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning, what's really most important 
is how you approach the situation in and of this moment. So for instance, a very simple, not so simple always in action, but a simple example, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it might be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we begin to clearly see and know that there's a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion and fear and anger, resistance and discontent, it's quite a long list, can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, of the mind, is a very good deed, really the best. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One thing that's really been very important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. I think many of us have been conditioned in various ways with And we come out thinking, well, too bad, it's just too late. Or for some of us, well, I'm too old. And uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know. Well, those are just absolutely not true. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge, really. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than the increase of the good? as this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to all of the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice and come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or maybe some discomfort or some pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some maybe some turmoil in our life or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we expected, not what we had in mind. Results that seem that are con- seem to be contrary to what we might think our intention, our 
motivation was. Many years ago, I had a a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind. She didn't say it quite like that, though, she would say. This isn't what I had in mind. That's more like how she would say it, you know. (laughs) Which would actually stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look to take a really close look at my motivations and my expectations and most importantly in those moments to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher then in a certain sense it becomes our friend and maybe sometimes a kind of stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher, yet potentially a really truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which for pretty much all of us seems to be our most difficult subject. I think you might all agree with me. (laughs) The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can really imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to uh, read um, a part of a piece from a book by Jacques Lucillon called, uh, the book is called And There Was Light. Jacques Lucillon was a man who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a a section from his autobiography that very beautifully uh, illuminates our Uh, discussion about Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see, Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation, for at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident, and there was anguish, a lack lack something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something like the mistake people who change their glasses without a... People... The mistake... Wait, let me start. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. 
I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had a value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny what they see. I was I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I only had to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he is rewarded, for everything comes his way.
and closing this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity and purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And the Buddha goes on to say, All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's sit together quietly for just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.